This episode is brought to you by debt experts Don't Fret About Debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly repayments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash blethered. You can also listen to my episode with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor Tommy Gallagher where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't Fret About Debt offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. SWG3 and The Big Light are delighted to present Blethered Live. Please welcome your host, Sean McDonald. Mike on? Yep, that'll be that. Thanks for clapping at me. Right, we'll just get straight into it. Please welcome to the stage, Eamon Dean. That is the James Bond theme tune. Fit for a spy. How are you? Good, thank you. I'll let you get set up. How is everybody tonight? Good? Don't all rush to answer me, it was. <laughs> right. So, let's go back to the, the start of your life. It's a podcast cliche. Um, I'll tell you what, I'll read this out to you. There's an Afghan-American author, his name's Khalid Hosseini, and he wrote True redemption is when guilt leads to good. What do you think about that? Do you think that applies to you? Um, well, yes, you can say that. <laughs> now, at one point, you were prepared to die to further what you thought was the, the righteous defense of Islam. That's obviously multifaceted and complex, and it's something that's evolved through the years. But let's find out how you kind of got to that point. So, born in Hubar in Saudi Arabia, youngest of six brothers. What was family life like? Well, family life was like any conservative society would be. I mean, um, you, know, you, you know, you do your uh, duty as a child. You know, you are obedient to your parents. You, um, you know, you know, you observe religious rites. But at the same time, it was a fun society. And mm-hmm. anyone who is from that hometown, you know, that uh, hometown is unique. And uh, I'm glad that one in the audience here is from my hometown without pointing the finger at them. <laughs> um, but, you know, that hometown was built on, you know, the uh, dinosaur juice that everyone basically is, you know, consuming these days and putting into their cars, <laughs> which is oil. Um, so that hometown was you know, fascinating in every possible way. Yes, the Saudi society as a whole was conservative, but that uh, you know, city where I was born and grew up was attracting so many different nationalities and so many even different uh, people from the rest of Saudi Arabia to come there and settle and live because that's where the oil was. Mm-hmm. And this is where Aramco, the biggest oil company in the world, was located. Um, my father, my three uncles, uh, I don't know how many cousins, I think maybe 29 in total now, first cousins, second cousins, all 
worked in the past or are still working for that company. Wow. Yeah. What what was it like? Because you know the perception of Saudi Arabia is this really draconian, um, strict society where women don't have any freedom and you'll be beheaded if you're gay. That's the sort of common tropes. What what kind of was it like day to day? Like could could I have gone there and had fun and had a good time? Like how does it, how would that appear to a Westerner? Well, it all depends on which time in history. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia was going through different phases. So if you're telling me you're going there in the 19, you know, 60s and 70s, it was very different atmosphere. It was, you know, slowly uh, modernizing and it was in a much better period than what followed because the period of the 80s and the 90s were more suffocating. Um, and I don't want to go into too many events, but if anyone would... Um, who have listened to the podcast before and what I was talking about, I was talking about the year 1979. I was born just three months before that you know, bloody awful year, but nonetheless, 1979 was the year in which um, you know, the Islamic Revolution in Iran started, the Islamization of Pakistan, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, um, and the uh, peace accord which uh, Egypt signed unilaterally with Israel, which led to a backlash in the rest of the Arab world. And, of course, most famously, when uh, a group of Saudi fanatics um, you know, who were rejecting the modernization uh, process that the Saudi government was doing at that time took over the Grand Mosque in Mecca and turned it into a battlefield for 18 days. Um, and that was an event that shook the Saudi leadership all the way to the core, and they were thinking, maybe we went too far. And so suddenly they stopped that process of modernization, and they started reversing some of that um, you know, societal modernization in order to you know, appease that radical element within the society. And that actually affected my upbringing and the upbringing of people who I know. I mean, because suddenly um, we are back into understanding Islam from the prism of, um, you, know, you know, as a societal, you know, uh, you know, rituals and rules rather than just basically being a spiritual religion. See, I would say that this is a really open-ended question, but based on picking up what you've just spoke about there with societal modernization, it's kind of inextricably linked to the evolutionary process that any society goes through. But do you think if the the Saudi authorities or government had just preserved things or been more conservative, do you think we would have seen such an issue? I know there are other factors and other contributing factors, but would we have seen such an issue with uh, Islamic extremism and, and terrorism that we've seen in the past couple of decades? Well, the problem with the um, with the term what we call you know Islamic extremism or radicalism, this term is almost you know global, and we can't put one particular factor on it. The reality is that the uh, the what they call it Wahhabism, we call it Salafism in uh, Saudi Arabia, was more or less something that was to an extent uh, non-political. I mean, they understood that you know that you know the role of the faith is to um, make sure that society follow you know, the rules, but the uh, l- political leadership belonged to the royal family, to the you know, people of the state, rather than to religious people. Mm. So, however, like with the uh, decolonization taking place in places like Egypt, in places like Syria, like Iraq, like uh, North Africa, you start to see uh, you know, these 
this decolonization replaced with secular, mostly you know, socialist-leaning and Soviet-leaning states. That led to a reaction from uh, Islamic elements within these societies that they responded by creating their own political framework for Islam in order to retaliate against what they saw as godless communism. So that resulted, of course, in the politicization of Islam in a way that was never seen before. Um, and that inevitably affected Saudi Arabia. Why? Again, we come back to oil. Uh, oil is important here. Like, you know, it doesn't only just move the world you know, in the uh, mechanical and <laughs> uh, transportational sense. It moves it even ideologically. Yeah. Because of oil, Saudi Arabia saw an you know, a influx of uh, many people from Egypt and from Syria and the Palestinian territories, uh, people with agendas, people who carry the Muslim Brotherhood um, ideology, and they brought it with them to Saudi Arabia. And there, this marriage between Muslim Brotherhood political framework of Islam and the austere conservative, um, in, or I would call it the austere conservatism of Wahhabism, that marriage happened and we ended up with a hybrid uh, ideology that saw itself as the rightful heir to what they see as the super-Islamic state, the caliphate. Yeah. So we've got a good, a good idea of the sort of socio-political landscape in which you're born into and, and how that's evolving. So you've got this general contributor, but let's look at your personal immersion in, in Islamic religion and culture. These are your words, an insufferable little know-it-all <laughs> when you were younger. <laughs> Uh, and that you thrived in your still, knowledge. By the way, still, oh yeah, I meant to say yeah, he's still a fucking <laughs> absolute and suffer. I can't stand you, honestly. That's a joke. Um, but you thrived on your knowledge of of religious text. Uh, Memorised the Quran entirely. What age? Nine. Twelve. Twelve. Ah, oh, it's embarrassing. I thought you'd have done that by at least ten. Um, so that's like a that's something that you're heavily immersed in. Then, with the sad passing of, of your mum and your dad in quite tragic circumstances, did you find that you felt that was your, your solace, like that was what you kind of went further into? Well, of course, when you are, you know, it is not usual, uh, you know, at that time for, uh, you know, for the society to have nerds being like, an, I mean, how can I say, you know, involved in sports or in the usual things that other kids uh, were engaging in. So I was more uh, engaged in um, what I call at the time the Islamic awareness circle. It's a circle of friends that I used to, um, you know, hang on with, uh, hang about with. And these people were always focusing on not just only the question of religious education, but also understanding the world through the prism of our, mm. you know, uh, you know, faith. So everything was revolving around the faith in a sense that was not as only societal and you know but also and, and social but also uh, you know um international in its uh, in a political framework to give you an example at that time we were growing up what was the biggest news stories always coming the afghan jihad so it was the 1980s and everyone was talking about the afghan jihad i mean there is always someone in the neighborhood who went to the jihad uh, either they come back or they don't come back at all like i mean they are dead so you always hear about these stories and the glorious jihad that the Afghan Mujahideen are doing. And of course, you are infected you know, by that atmosphere. 
Sorry to interrupt, just while it's in my head. Did your brother Mohideen not go to fight in, Indeed, in Afghanistan? Indeed, yes. Indeed, yes. And it's like, you know, and not only him, like, but also a cousin of mine yeah. and a neighbor of mine and a teacher of mine. It was something that almost most people did in order to, you know, well, I'm talking about like in the people within the conservative circles. Mm-hmm. Mo, you know, many of them went to the jihad there, either like in them to participate, you know, either in the summers and the winters, and then they come back. Uh, some of them don't. But all of them, when they come back, they come back already having had that, um, I would say, when they already crossed the threshold, yeah. you know, of having already carried arms. And so, you know, for themselves, what the power of carrying arms could do, you know, you could actually exact change. Later in life, when I, you know, uh, went to the jihad myself, I realized, you know, how empowering that could be. And that sense of empowerment, which led to, you know, number of uh, civil wars and strife that will happen in other countries across the Muslim world, you know, Algeria, Libya, Yemen, and we will, you know, touch on that later. Your, um, your brother's influence on you with regards to the West in America in itself must have been really contradictory and quite confusing so correct me if i'm wrong he went to florida to study chemical engineering yes and he was really fascinated by the the west like mcdonald's and the sort of way of living he also wanted to become a hippie probably two decades three decades too late for that but (laughs) um so he's probably coming back and being like oh you know this is this is pretty cool but then he's going to kind of rail against the west did you have that contradiction or did you just think, well, he knows because he's been to America, you know, he's, he's seen what the West is like, so I should really, and he's 18 years your, your senior as well. Well, I mean, I didn't see that contradiction at the beginning because, you know, in 1990, I was only just 11, you know, when uh, we had the, you know, the, the awful news that Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, which is just 300, you know, kilometers just, uh, or 200 miles, like in the north of where we lived. And I remember that I used to see the, you know, caravans of refugees, like, you know, but they are not your ordinary refugees. I mean, these are refugees who are coming in Mercedes and BMWs and Cadillacs and, the, you know, the affluent Kuwaitis who were fleeing away, you know, from uh, the march of Saddam Hussein's armies. And at the time, we felt the fear because we felt that, you know, you know, yes, the first, first are the refugees, then they will be followed by Saddam's army into yeah. our, uh, you know, cities. What was going to happen? So who came to the rescue? Who came actually to, um, you know, uh, to stop Saddam Hussein from invading uh, Saudi Arabia and the rest of the Gulf countries? The Americans. So, you know, first it was the Kuwaiti refugees in their luxury cars. And then after that, you know, a month later, they were replaced by American soldiers driving in our city in Humvees, you know, all over the place. Because the largest air base in the um, uh, kingdom was just, you know, next door to us. Um, and so I think... At the time, America wasn't exactly the villain, not yet. And remember that the Afghan jihad in the 1980s was financed and supported by who? Apart from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, it was who? The USA. Exactly. So the break with the West didn't really happen until the mid-90s. So there's, a, there's a whole load of things pulling you in loads of different ways, and I feel like in chaos, people try to find um, calmness or sort of answers and things. I'll allow you, allow you, right, as if I'll give you the privilege, but you know far better than I do. But let's talk about something that you found solace in and you found some answers in would have been the writings of Syed Qutb. Sorry if I butchered 
Eamon's no, hammered making my pronunciation or something. You did it right. Is that one right? <laughs> you okay. said it right. Yeah. Um, so he wrote a book in the shade of the Quran. He was a founding father of modern revolutionary Islam, which some people could perceive to be uh, jihad, like a form of jihad or extremism. Maybe not the right terminology, but basically a, a far darker and more radical interpretation. Was that a first step for you into a darker side of the ideology, or was it showing you something else like how how did that sort of manifest itself well and you know until i was 12 i wasn't viewing you know the uh, the things i was learning you know in the islamic awareness circle from a purely political uh, framework i was just looking at them as you know the things i'm supposed to learn about my own faith however i think after the passing of my mother in particular I wanted to understand more about grief and understanding how to deal with or how, how to cope with grief within your faith. And so this is when one of my teachers recommended that I read the uh, writings of Sayyid Qutb, in particular this book, you know, In the Shades of the Quran. Now it took two years you know, until I was 14 to finish it because don't forget it's a 4,000 pages. It's not like an, I'm in a small uh, you know, book, it's six volumes. Um, and the reason why he said that it is important for you to read it is that, okay, you memorize the Quran now, but you need to understand that what you memorize is, you know, this old, you know, beautiful, literal language, you know, but you need to unlock the meanings within. And someone who in our modern day and age did it, but did it through the prism of grief, would be Sayyid Qutb. Why? Because when he wrote this book, nine, sorry, in prison. He wrote the, you know, he wrote the entire thing. Nine years he wrote it in prison, and Egyptian prisons in the 1950s and 60s were no picnic at all. I mean, <laughs> you know, they 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 were a place where, for example, like Sayyid Qutb himself described that. You know, they would, you know, uh, douse him in animal fat, and then they would let loose hungry dogs on him. Um, and he would sleep in, you know, uh, in uh, cells that were, you know, scorpions and snakes were there. And he would, like, you know, have to be awake, you know, for days at an end to make sure he doesn't get stung. So there he actually formulated his understanding. So it's not just only the writing through grief, because he lost his mother when he was there in, uh, you know, in prison and... Uh, you know, but he wasn't writing through grief. Yes, I, I, you know, I was reading it, hoping to understand how to cope with grief. But what I read there, you know, was more the writings of someone who is growing more and more angry, you know, with the whole Islamic society, because he is seeing and experiencing injustice at such, you know, a dark level, and yet he doesn't see anyone outside of the prison walls trying to free them, trying to, you know, uh, uh, you know to actually uninstall this uh, regime that have taken over Egypt. If anything, he hear the masses outside chanting in the name of the jailer, you know, who put them there, President Nasser. So he started formulating this dark idea that jihad is no longer the prerogative of the state. Jihad now must be the prerogative of the individual to unseat the state to remove the state and to replace the state with an Islamic state. For the first time ever in Islam, you know, jihad no longer is uh, a prerogative of the state. 
Usually violence in Islam, and many people ask me this question, is Islam a violent religion? And I say yes and no. You know, yeah. Yes, because you know, if it's uh, you know, within the confines of the state, you know, only the state in Islam has the right to deploy violence. Mm-hmm. But in this instance, you know, Sayyid Qutb was the first to start popularizing the idea that no, we now, you know, not only that jihad is no longer the prerogative of the state, now jihad must be used by individuals against the state. I can understand, like, if I was looking for comfort and, and for sort of meaning in something, and then I was reading something from the perspective, one which gave me that comfort, but then from the perspective of somebody going through grave injustice, I think I would also really, I think it would really resonate with me, really strike a chord. I can understand this is the kind of picture I'm trying to gradually paint, that you didn't wake up one day and just think, I think I'll go and join Al-Qaeda. Like, it, it was, it's, there's a whole pathway and a whole sort of jigsaw of loads of things. What you're saying there about yes and no with it being a violent religion and not makes me think of these two verses from the Quran that I've got. So you'll know these before I say them. But Surah 2, eh, sorry, Surah 22, verse 39, which says, permission to fight is given to those upon whom war is made because they are oppressed and most surely God is well able to assist them. And if you look at, if you're reading the Quran and to you it has this massive weight, you're going to go, yeah, well, that, that's, that's complete justification. And then the other is Surah 2, verse 190. Fight for God's sake against those who fight against you, but begin no hostilities for God loves not the aggressors. Now, if I'm reading that, I'm saying, well, that's a green, that's the green light. You know, I've got a passport to go and fight for what I think to be righteous. And I suppose those verses and countless others would have determined in which path you'd gone down. Um, now let's take a look at radicalization and it's something that takes place at different junctures. You and I have spoken about it. And we will go on to talk about it later with Shemaima Begum as a prime example. Um, this is funny and it's not. It's pretty twisted. But Yusuf Alayeri is a guy that came into your school and he told you that the Smurfs, this is the Smurfs, you know, the wee blue characters. <laughs> One of your favourite shows was Haram, which is forbidden. And actually the Smurfs are a Western plot designed to destroy the fabric of our society, to destroy morality and respect for your parents. And if you continue to watch it, you'd start carrying out pranks and mixing magic potions. This is forbidden, but the fucking best bit. The sexuality of the female Smurf is disgusting (laughs) and unacceptable. Uh, I don't know what that says about that guy, right? (laughs) Or what he's seeing, or how he's interpreting that. Well, maybe he, you know, had a thing for blue things, but anyway. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a a little bit the lady does protest a little too much, isn't it? Mate, nobody else wants to shag the Smurf, like, why are you talking about so when they come into your school, though, do you take them seriously? Well, unfortunately, at that time, yes, because you do take them seriously as you know those teachers who are the examples. They you know the you know they are the role models of morality, of you know endurance, of sacrifice for uh, their own faith, and therefore you you know we, at that time we looked at them as you know people who had you know the authority to tell us like you know, I mean how to think, how to behave, what to do. But even then, I had the sense to think, you know, sorry, like, you know, uh, haram or not, like, you know, basically, I'm going to watch the Smurfs because <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it was so cool. Uh, do, you so, not, do you not call your, your daughter Smurfette? Uh, yeah, I do, sorry, actually. It's, it's continued on. <laughs> so, so, so in, a, in a sense, yes, 
you know, there were these, you know, uh, moments when, you know, we were always fed, you know, these things that, you know, uh, you know th these ideas that, you know, the West got nothing else to do but to, you know, weave conspiracies, you know, and, you know, and this is why to this day I carry this antipathy towards conspiracy theorists because, like, and I mean, you know, we lived it and we hated it so much, yeah. you know, when we are young that we always think that there is a conspiracy behind every door, um, you know, coming to get, to get us. But it was successful in a way, not in the uh, granular level, you know, but, you know, in the bigger picture, it was successful of painting, you know, that... Uh, hostile, you know, global new order, you know, post, you know, the Gulf War in, you know, uh, in 1992, I think, that we are subject to a new cultural invasion and that we need to stand up against it. In later years, I realized that it was a ruse, you know, used by um, certain politically active clerics yeah. in order to destabilize the state. But I didn't know at the time, you know, I, I, for me, I was just someone who would just learn everything and receive it and, you know, act upon it. And this is why in 1992 there was this event which resonated with me and I started to pay more attention to it, which is the um, civil war that erupted in Bosnia mm. in April of 1992. And from then I started to pay much closer attention uh, to that uh, yeah. conflict. See, I'm trying to think, where else do you have populist politicians trying to destabilise the state by making broad brushstroke bullshit claims? Oh, fuck, it's here today. <laughs> Shit, I thought it was a bad fucking dream. It's actually happening. Um, now, we'll talk about what happened in Bosnia uh, and with the Civil War. And do you think it was maybe just good timing that that took place around about the time they're making these claims? Because we, we'll talk about the genocide that took place. Um, against Muslims in Bosnia. Do you think that was good timing for them that, you know, they were just counting the lucky stars that they could say, look, see, it's happening, that, you know, that's in, in Central Europe or, like, sort of mid-Eastern Europe? Absolutely. I mean, we were, th you know, at the, at the time, they were trying to paint, you know, the conflict as an extension of the Crusades from the Middle Ages, that this ethnic cleansing that's taking place is not ethnic cleansing, this is religious cleansing, because... They argued that the Bosnians were native Balkan people. I mean, they were you know, indistinguishable in terms of DNA from the Serbs. They are Serbs, actually, who converted to Islam in the uh, you know, 16th and 17th centuries. And so, therefore, you know, the killing is happening based on religious identity rather than um, on uh, ethnic one. And so the shocking images coming out of there is that we couldn't distinguish Bosnians from other Europeans. And the idea that they were killed because they carry the names of Ahmed, Sinan, and Mirsad, like, and I mean, so, you know, was shocking, you know, and also at the same time, it spoke, you know, it spoke into our, into our sense of injustice, at least for myself, like, you know, into my sense of injustice. And I remember also that one of my teachers, you know, from the school went over the summer to fight there, and he died. And I remember that when one of our teachers, another one, coming to our class in order to tell us that, you know, well, you know, uh, this teacher is not coming back and why he went, you know, to uh, fight the jihad in Bosnia. And I remember this is the first time, you know, that the, uh, the, the words jihad and martyrdom and sacrifice 
you know, all were uttered in one classroom by one teacher, you know, and I think what he attempted, he was attempting grief counseling, he ended up actually inciting, uh, in a sense. Yeah. And I think this is what, this was 1992. By 1994, you know, with the, you know, the, the, the following two years, something was happening that was, you know, more or less preparing me for the idea that I don't want to just hear about it, I know I don't want to just do fundraising and you know carrying these little bags to you know to um, uh, you know collect funds you know for the Bosnian Muslims after Friday prayers. No, this is not enough. I, I felt the need to do something more. It's just I was waiting for a trigger, waiting for an event that will do it. You know, for me, and I think it just happened in uh, October of uh, 1994 when one of my friends from the Islamic Awareness Circle, who was three years my senior, but, you know, generally, like, and I used to mix with older kids, like, you know, that was my style anyway at that time, um, decided to go. And when his brother told me that he was leaving, I thought, okay, I'm, you know, going to walk to his uh, house and say goodbye. In the 10 minutes it took me to walk to his house, by the time I knocked on his door, I said, I'm coming with you. Um, and I remember I was 16 at that time. I just became 16, literally, like three weeks earlier. And he was telling me, he was trying to persuade me, not, you know, forget it, like, you know, I'm not taking you with me. Um, you're young, you know, you are bookish, nerdish, and all of that, like, and I mean, you know, he was asking me a question. He said, like, you know, I mean, in all, tr in all honesty, do you think that the jihad needs you? And I remember that when I, when I answered him, um, he realized that maybe I had the right attitude you know, towards the whole thing. He, I said to him, come on, I'm not arrogant to think that anything needs me. You know, the jihad doesn't need me. God doesn't need me. The faith doesn't need me. But I need it. I'm the one who is in need of this. Um, and so I remember that you know, when he heard this, you know, he thought, well, at least like, you, know, you have the right attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, therefore, I will, therefore, I will take you with me. Did you have any idea what you were going to in terms of on the battlefield or how you would be used because to paint the picture for people listening if you can think of the most i don't know mental thing you did in your 16 mine was probably like drinking six beers and trying to fit my mum's <laughs> hair but kidding on i hadn't been drinking that was probably the biggest out most outlandish thing i did you want to fight in an actual battlefield like a long long way from home um as I said, that the idea of going far away to fight in a battlefield wasn't foreign because already years earlier, you know, there were many people from our family and our neighborhood and our schools and our universities and our mosques going to fight the jihad in Afghanistan. So it wasn't a foreign idea, in a sense. You know, and so, you know, the, 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 the infrastructure was there. And this is why, you know, when some people ask the question, you know, uh, how are, you know, radicals born, you know, when they join... You know, violent political, you know, violent terrorist organizations. You know, how, how do they come around? And I always say that no one wakes up one day and decides that's it. Today I'm going to be a terrorist. You know, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't happen like that. What happens is that, you know, the path to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. Good intentions. And this is why I always say that good intentions are not enough, you know, to make you a good person. What you need in order to make these good intentions lead to truly good outcome is wisdom. 
Unfortunately, Sean, when you're 16, you're short of wisdom. I mean, wisdom is a short supply completely. Yeah, I beg to differ. I knew everything when I was 16, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, to get there, it's a bit of a mad journey because air travel wasn't as, you know, as, as simple a thing as it is now. You had to go via Vienna to get to Croatia, to get to Bosnia. What was it like? Because you said when you arrived in Vienna, you were shocked. It's going to be a big cultural difference and the internet wasn't a thing back then. You were shocked at like, the way women were dressed or just how things were. Did it feel as if you were like just stepping into another planet? Oh, yes. I mean, for me, it, you know, it was the first time I set a foot in a European country. And, uh, you know, and there in Vienna airport, like, and I mean, seeing, you know, different world altogether. Um, you know, we were four travelers. And so, you know, and I was the youngest among them. But nonetheless, I mean, you know, I, I felt like you know, this, this cultural shock at the beginning. But... You know, as usual, like, and I get, uh, adapted very quickly. Did did nobody stop you on the way there and be like, mate, where the hell, where are you going? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Thank God, like, and I mean, for some reason, you know, it's just the journey was so smooth yeah. um, at that time. We just uh, went from Vienna to Ljubljana and Slovenia and from there to Split in Croatia. And then, you know, we took the bus like everyone else, like, and I mean, into Bosnia. Passing through some beautiful places, I'm not questioning your devotion to the cause, but did you not think, ah, do you know what, I might just hang about and split and <laughs> stay in Croatia. <laughs> Me and my pal go to split all the time, it's amazing. Like, no matter where I was heading, I'd be like, nah, I'm just going to stay here. Um, no, you don't. Because <laughs> okay, so you are quite committed. Yeah, then. the eye is on the prize. I mean, you know, you, you focus on where you're going. The goal, you know, is just there. There's quite a wee comedic juxtaposition of, like, <laughs> worlds. Because I think, was it the, you went to the Al-Sahaba Mosque and then you went for a McDonald's? Yes. Like, those two are quite contradictory to each other, aren't they? <laughs> In a sense, from, from what they symbolise anyway, if you imagine the golden arches and then the... Well, I mean, at the time, America wasn't yet seen to be the enemy, still. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, but both. also for a reason, because we were thinking, we need something halal to eat. And the only halal thing, like in Iran, is McDonald's, because they have fish burgers. <laughs> That's it. You can eat fish, you know. You know it doesn't... <laughs> and I, I don't know, in this sort of time that we're living in, it's very difficult to say things without treading on somebody's toes. But being a wee boy and seeing like people who must be Muslim in McDonald's, I just thought... They really liked fish, like fillet of fish, because <laughs> I'd never really seen anybody else. I didn't know what halal was, and I thought, that's really strange. I wonder if that's a cultural thing. I suppose it is, in a sense. Um, on the way there, you were discussing martyrdom. You, kinda, you expected to die there. Um, you said that you were energised by it. Am I right in saying you had said that you wanted to be vaporised by an explosive, or was that hyperbole? That's not me. <laughs> That's another right. one. <laughs> that was somebody else that said somebody that. Else. Someone did say that, though. <laughs> had, you, had you lost some of your will to live, or did you want to be reunited with your family? Like, what was your way of thinking there? No. I mean, none of these, like, in a way, are, you know, really a motivation. Like, I mean, the, the, the real motivation for me was that there was this injustice that was taking place in Bosnia, that genocide that was taking place. And for me, I just felt, you know, the need to be there. I, I totally refused to be a spectator, you know, on the, you know, on the side, you know, seeing all of this, you know, seeing the march of history going on, and I'm not joining the caravan. In fact, like, you know, this is one of the, you know, big influences was when one of the most celebrated jihadist thinkers 
and writers, you know, Abdullah Azzam, who was the godfather of Musama bin Laden and many others, he wrote a book, you know, he, he called it Join the Caravan. He, you know, so of course, like, you know, I mean, I grew up, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, the desert, you know, the, you know, the romantic idea of the caravan and you have to join it. You don't want to be left, you know, behind. So I think I went there not only because I was seeking martyrdom, because I, you know, I had a pathological, like, and I mean, wish to die. No, it's more than that. It's like, you know, to aspire for something much higher, much more noble. Um, I want to say these are the words of the prophet, I think. Um, and I've got a kind of an aside question to ask, mm-hmm. kind of relevant. But the words are, with the first drop of blood, all the sins of a martyr are forgiven. And with the second, they see their place in heaven. Is that, are those words of that section, are they, do you think they're taken to recruit psychopaths to places like ISIS and stuff and saying, because we, we what, you know, people in ISIS do, uh, and I interviewed somebody recently who negotiates with ISIS terrorists for the release of American hostages. Um, in fact, the, do you remember the Jordanian pilot that was oh, yes. shot down? And they, they, ISIS, they locked him in a cage and they set it on fire. Um, and you think, you cannot be as devoted to your religion as you purport to be or try and present yourself to be and also carry something like that out. Those two things are just not compatible with each other. And it makes me wonder then, do you think that recruiters will go to people and say, by the way, you've probably done some horrendous shit in your life, but if you come and die as a martyr, then all is forgiven. You'll get your 72 virgins in heaven. Like, is that a thing? Well, look, Islam, just like Catholicism, is a guilt-based religion. You know, so, you know, th- th- that is well established. I mean, so... Um, deny that. Yeah, yeah, you feel guilty about everything and anything. Um, but, you know, but, you know, but in Catholicism, you know, you can go to a priest, you know, you can, in the confessional box, and you confess your sins, and you are given absolution, you know, say Hail Mary ten times, and that's it. Like, I mean, but in Islam, there is no mediator between you and the Creator, and therefore you have to repent on your own. And you have no idea if this repentance is accepted or not. Uh, now, this wasn't, wouldn't have been a problem you know, you know, throughout Islamic history, but you know, while in Catholicism and in Christianity, the relationship between the individual and the creator are based on love, you know, so, you know, you know, God loves you and you love him, in Islam, it is based on three you know, pillars. You, know, you have love, hope, and fear. You love the Lord, you hope for his reward, and you fear his uh, damnation. So, you know, you know, there is always a balance. And this is why when they say that a preacher in Islam needs to balance his message to his congregation, you know, not to overemphasize love, not to overemphasize fear, not to overemphasize hope, and to have this balance. However, the balance has been upset, you know, in the last 40 years, I would say, across the Muslim world. And now, you know, 80% of the preaching is about fear, 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 fear. Like, you know, if you do this, hell. If you do this, hell. And if you do this, hell. Drink, hell. You know, sleep around, hell. <laughs> so, you know, uh, watch movies, hell. Smurfs in particular, hell. So, <laughs> so, so, so what happened is you end up in a situation where you end up with a generation growing up feeling guilty all the time. Uh, you know, and as a result, you know, and and what happened is, it, it, again, it is done because of good intentions. Good intentions, you know, the path to hell is paved with them. And those preachers who see the advance of, you know, cult- Western cultural modernity, and they want to guard their congregation 
you know, from what they see as the evils of, you know, this, you know, capitalistic, consumeristic, you know, uh, culture, they end up putting literally the fear of God, you know, into the hearts of their congregation and end up, you know, having people who always feel guilty. So what happens is you end up with prison populations, you know, who are the people who carry the most guilt around, um, being told that you murdered, you raped, you know, you, you know, beaten up people, you know, you stolen from people, you have wronged people in many different ways. Well, there is a way out of it, and it is fast, and it's, you know, it, 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 it is going to grant you that swift forgiveness that you're looking for. Because right now, you're overburdened with all of your sins, and therefore, that is where you will find it. And this is why, unfortunately, prisons, whether it is in the Muslim world or in the Western world, has been a breeding ground of extremism. Mm. And exactly this, I mean, uh, you know, the promise of forgiveness uh, you know, once you have died, you know, for uh, the cause, is t- is tempting. Yeah. It is tempting. Yeah, it makes sense. Sorry for taking us away off there, but I thought it was a, a good chance to ask that. Um, do you remember the Bosnian fighter, Abdin, mm-hmm. that you met? So, Abdin, he was at university in Sarajevo, so well, things are really starting to escalate in Bosnia, um, the Serbs pillaged his village they killed his entire family. They raped his sister, then they killed her, and then they kidnapped another sister. Did that really take it to another level of, oh my God, this is what's going on, and I am really here fighting for a a, a noble cause? Everything that happened there, you know, or by the time I arrived, I remember uh, first going through the... You know, you know, when we arrived in in Dubrovnik, and from there, from the into Mostar, and you start to uh, that journey into Bosnia. As the landscape changed from beautifully preserved villages into horrendously destroyed ones, and you start to see the bullet holes everywhere, you start to see the charred, um, you know, uh, you know, charred burnt mosques and um, homes. And villages, you start to think that this is vindicating why I'm here. You know, you start to see it and you think this is vindication. And as the war progressed, and as I'm there, and you start to, of course, like, you know, go around and you see the, um, you know, uh, the outcome of the war in a real sense, where we discover mass graves and uh, you, uh, you know, uh, try to exhume the remains and you try to sort them out according to age. And you start to see how young and young and smaller and smaller the skeletons are. You know, of course, all of this starts to resonate with you. And it t- starts to tell you, you did the right thing. You are here for the right reason. I mean, what, what is the difference? Like, you know, at the time, I would, I would say this. I'm not trying to justify anything. I'm just saying that what is the difference between those, you know, basically who went to Bosnia to fight the war there in order to stop a genocide and, and those who went to join the you know, uh, the Ukrainian Foreign Legion, you know, who are fighting there at the moment against the Russian advance there. I mean, at the end of the day, or the, Pope, the people who went to fight in the Spanish Civil War, yeah. um, you know, against, uh, you know, Franco and the fascists. My, I mean, my personal opinion, is, well, so I, not long after you and I first met, I interviewed a guy, his name's uh, Robert McNeil, MBE, mm. uh, and he's a Glaswegian guy, and he 
worked at like the mortuary and stuff in Glasgow and he ended up working for the United Nations and he would go to war zones uh, and he was there in Srebrenica in Bosnia to uncover evidence of genocide and when he spoke about it I was it was quite upsetting I was like I don't want to be gratuitous I don't want to to be like grief porn or be like yeah tell me all the bad stuff because it'll get people to listen but I thought we, we should be pretty open about it and tell me what you saw and he's an impartial observer you know he's there with the United Nations and he said that he had to like paint and sort of do express himself that way to get through the horrors of what he saw he said sometimes he still wakes up sweating and screaming in the night and I said that I realised that whereas I first thought from what I'd spoken to you about, I thought it was justifiable. Um, this At this point, it became a question of humanity because people they were being slaughtered, weren't they? I mean, I don't think that's... I don't think that's an unfair representation to say that it was just utterly horrific. And, you know, I understand, like, your man, Abdin, for him it was, it was revenge. And who here or who listening could say that if somebody did all those things to their family, they wouldn't kind of go out and, and do the same thing. Um, was it was it terrifying, like, being on a battlefield? Or was it, was, was it ever exciting? Because you thought you were doing the right thing, did you think, right, okay, I'm into this? Or were there ever periods where you thought, I wish I was up the road watching the Smurfs? <laughs> um, the good thing about it is that the first 45 days, uh, you know, I spent in Bosnia were in a training camp. And I remember asking precisely this question, you know, you're going to send us into the front line, not, not you, know, not <laughs> you know, quite soon, although it's going to be quiet because it's winter, but it's, you know, there will be shelling and there will be, you know, shooting across the trenches. And so how terrifying is going to be? And I remember the, um, you know, our instructor was very good at explaining things. He would say, look, if you want the fear to completely, you know, uh, leave you keep shooting keep shooting back and the most important thing is that you do not shoot back you know blindly you do not keep shooting like you know with the full automatic on you focus where the fire is coming from you see the flash you know the muzzles coming from the other side you focus on that and you shoot one bullet at a time mm. if you do that then you know you will experience no fear well, guess what? He was right. That's, that's insane. Do you ever have, like, PTSD flashbacks or anything? Uh, no flashbacks, no. Nah. But, you know, PTSD is always with you. You know, it never yeah. leaves you. Like, but, you know, flashbacks, no. The uh, was it NATO forces started bombing, but it was pretty much, it was, you felt it was too little, too late. They, we kind of get to the end of that point, not just to skip over it, but you then, what was the point? from you then ending up in Al-Qaeda? Had you been, like, in the Philippines and a couple of other places fighting? Yeah, I mean, after Bosnia ended, I mean, you know, I remember I told you, like, you know, we were four travellers, you know, going into Bosnia. I mean, by the time That's we left... one fucking hell of a gap year, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> uh, more like mind the gap. Or, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, this is one of the uh, things is that... I remember when we were leaving Bosnia and we left because, you know, the war was over. And one of the conditions, actually, of the Dayton Agreement, which ended the war, was that all foreign fighters need to leave. And so, you know, it's not like in our choice, hey, you know, we can stay, but no, yeah. you must leave. So we left and I remember we went, to, 
as a, as a stop gap, like we went to Istanbul. And there in Istanbul, we were thinking, where next? And I remember that, you know, one particular person who came to visit Bosnia, um, you know, I think around October of 95, just a year after I arrived, um, he was trying to encourage myself and few others to go into Afghanistan because the training camps are reopening. And I remember, you know, he was really like, I mean, keen on uh, several of us to go there. He gave me a, um, a piece of paper with a phone number and name on it uh, in Pakistan. And he said, if you ever want to go to Afghanistan, you know, call this guy. However, you know, me, you know, I don't listen to anyone easily. I mean, I decided, no, I want to go to Shashniya and I wanted to go to the, uh, you know, Caucasus. Um, and this is where I ended up being, you know, what I would call an office jihadist. I became a jihadist accountant. Seriously, I'm not kidding. I, well, I, I was just like you know, adding numbers and pieces of paper and, you know, in ledger books and making sure that, uh, you know, with a team of five, we were a team of five at the time in uh, Azerbaijan, uh, in Baku. And I remember we were the support team, the logistical team for 900, you know, contingent of jihadists inside Chechnya who were fighting the Russian forces. It's... You often think of these things like attacks as being sporadic or sort of spontaneous, but this these groups are heavily, heavily organised, aren't they, and heavily well funded. You know, was it like being inside a big company? It is more like inside, like being inside a big NGO. I mean, <laughs> it is an NGO in a sense, a non-governmental organisation. <laughs> Imagine them, UNICEF, yeah. Save the Children, Al Qaeda. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and. The, the funding is done through charitable means, you know, you divert, you know, uh, some of that charity money, like, you know, that is directed at refugees, you know, you know because, mm. you know, you, you, you rationalize it, you say, well, look, you know, you want to end the war, you know, that is causing, you know, uh, you know this refugee crisis, because there is no point, you know, um, you know, uh, you know, of feeding the refugees if you are not going to stop the cause, which is the core that is actually breeding more and more refugees. And this is one of the things is that to divert some of that into funding those forces that is going to uh, push against it. I mean, of course, it's a naive thinking at that time uh, in my part, because actually we ended up prolonging the war and prolonging the yeah. suffering rather than actually, um, you, know, uh, you know, doing the right thing. But yes, they are well funded. Um, and this is how I've seen it at that time. And I remember how we used to infiltrate, you know, certain charities from across the Muslim world in order to divert more and more funds um, and uh, how to fundraise and how to contact certain, you know, groups of dedicated fundraisers even. Was there ever any, any cooperation from seriously influential groups, individuals, even governments that couldn't be seen to be supporting but wanted to? Was that ever a thing? Uh, there was, a to a degree. Mm. Yeah. But I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> thought we had the exclusive. Tell me after, right? Tell me. I promise I won't tell anybody. Hello, is that the sun? Um, I, I don't want to ask this question in a sort of like flippant way, right? But you did meet Osama bin Laden. Yeah. That's, isn't that nuts? Like, Osama bin Laden. Where did, you, where did you meet him? Well, you know, after I got bored of being an office jihadist accountant and whatever, like, and I mean, I decided to go to Afghanistan and to follow the advice of that, you know, man who gave me that piece of paper. Uh, you know, the irony is that that man who gave me the piece of paper was actually the mastermind of 9-11, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. 
so he gave me that you know, piece of paper. He gave me the name that I'm supposed to call. And so I called that name, and I landed in Pakistan. And within two days, I was inside Afghanistan. And I remember, you know, I was sent with an Afghan doctor uh, who will be my guide you know, to take me. Uh, because when you cross the Pakistani-Afghan uh, border, you don't cross with a car or with a train or with a plane. You cross on foot. You know, there is a big gate. There are no you know, immigration officers or anything. Just people and animals crossing. <laughs> you know, it's just... There's no duty-free or anything. Yeah, there. oh, forget the duty-free. You know I mean? <laughs> <laughs> no stamp in the passport, just on you go. Nothing, no documents, nothing. Like, you know, I mean, you just have to pretend to be a Pashtun tribal individual. Mm. I mean, you just move, you, know, you just wear the you know, local clothes. And that Afghan doctor was with me. And if any border guards from the Pakistani side like, you know, try to identify if there are any non-Pashtuns there, you know, the Afghan doctor will interfere immediately and say, well, he, he, he is a poor guy. He is deaf and mute. And you know? so, you know, there is no point talking to him. And I have to remove my glasses, like, you know, because, you know, <laughs> they don't wear glasses there for some reason. <laughs> so oh, yeah, I can't imagine as many like spec savers or free tests. <laughs> what makes sense. I then re- I asked, you know, you know my, my Afghan doctor, Dr. Mohammed Hanif, his name, like, and I asked him, I said to him, Dr. Hanif, like, and I mean, why? I, you know, you told me to move my glasses, like, why? He said, you will know soon. Uh, I know, okay, fine. So as soon as we, you know, crossed the Torkhum Gate on the Khyber Pass into Afghanistan, I remember that I felt as if we went back a hundred years in time, you know, really. First of all, there are, there is hardly any electricity. No phone lines, even the landlines, like you know, no phone lines whatsoever, and there are no TVs. So this is when he said to me, we don't need glasses, there are no TVs. People don't watch TVs there. Yeah, oh, there's no, no requirement for them. When you said <laughs> it felt like going back 100, ti- 100 years in time, I almost said, yeah, there's a place near here called, mm, and it's the same, but uh, there might be people from in here, so I'm not going to say, <laughs> uh, so, sorry, from there in here. Um, so you kind of go and... When you had arrived, has Saddam, eh, Saddam, I'm getting my dictators and psychopaths mixed up, Osama bin Laden had been coming back, was it Sudan that he'd been travelling from and he looked pretty dishevelled? Well, yeah, I mean, three months after I arrived, he arrived. And, uh, you know, and by that time, I already, like, and I mean, been in the camp training for about three months. So we heard the news that his aircraft landed in Jalalabad airport and he was fleeing for his life from uh, Sudan. They chartered the flight and they just, um, you know, left. I mean, the, the, you know, one, one funny anecdote actually here, which is not known in history, you know, never been told before, by the way. Never? Never been told before. That chartered aircraft, you know, when they were going to Afghanistan, ran out of fuel. So they had to land in Dubai, of all places, you know, to refuel. Now, the Dubai authorities never had the flight manifest and didn't know that Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, and all of these people were there. Fucking <laughs> hell. Yeah, and what happened is all of them, you know, had AK-47s with them. And so, <laughs> and, and this story was told to me by two of the people who were on the airplane. So, you know, the Dubai authorities, you know, could have prevented 9-11, you know, <laughs> five years earlier, if only, if only they knew who was on that aircraft. So they just refueled, and they were all at standby inside, you know, holding their AK-47s, expecting any, you know, uh, at any moment to be stormed. But to their relief, 
you know, the plane was airfueled, you know, they were, they, sorry, the plane was uh, refueled, and, you know, they flew all the way to Afghanistan and landed in Jalalabad. Talk, like, talk about butterfly effects. So imagine, like, if just one wee guy in an airport had had, like, a sheet on it, or, I don't know, there had been some alert, the whole, you wouldn't be sitting here. The yep. world would be completely different, and you can almost trace that back to that one time. Have they ever been reprimanded for that? Or um, is it just like a case of, well, you didn't know? Well, I mean, there was no flight manifest. I mean, it was a privately chartered airplane, um, wow. and the Sudanese government was keen, you know, for them to get to Afghanistan and not to be, you know, uh, you know. so the identities of all of those who were on the airplane were kept secret. That is absolutely mental. Exactly. And then, so he, he manages to make it to Afghanistan, and what was your then first meeting with him? Well, he, he was, he heard, because, because of the compound where he settled in uh, at the beginning was only about 45 minutes drive from our camp. And so we heard that he was asking if there are anyone from, you know, of course, he never used the word Saudi Arabia, uh, because for him there is no such thing as Saudi Arabia. <laughs> he hated the Saud royal family, and so right. he styled, st styles it as the Arabian Peninsula. So he was asking if there is anyone from Arabia there. And so 14 of us went, you know. Uh, so we went to see him. And I remember when we went into the compound, we've noticed, you know, boxes everywhere and suitcases everywhere and... You know, and you know the people there looked as if they were so disheveled. You know, as if they were refugees. I mean, it looked to me not dissimilar from a Chechen refugee camp I've seen earlier that year in uh, Azerbaijan. So I was thinking, okay, well, they just you know fled for their lives from Sudan, so it's not uh, out of the ordinary. Now, when you when you mention when you mention the name Osama bin Laden, uh, most people conjure in their mind immediately that image of him with the white, you know, turban, white robes, yeah. looking, you know, uh, well presented. That's not how I saw him that day. You know, that day he looked, you know, he came in a robe that was creased and left ironed, and he was wearing a, the red headscarf, you know, the red Arabic headscarf, but it was so not well looked after. He looked disheveled. Um, and so that was the first image I had of him. And I remember he sat down, he had his deputies around him, and um, and we were sitting down in front of him, 14 of us. And I remember that he was asking us about what we did before. And you know, we told him about our experiences in either in Bosnia or the Caucasus or other places. And, you know, he started to launch then into why he came back into Afghanistan. I mean, I thought like, you know, he was there because he was expelled by the Sudanese authorities. But he wanted to put a, a more optimistic note on it. You know, he wanted to say that Actually, it was divine providence. It was divine intervention that brought us you know, from Sudan into Afghanistan. And he started to um, use what I call Islamic eschatology, you know, which is the prophecies uh, you know, from you know, obscure Islamic texts in order to justify that him being in Afghanistan is an, an important part on a divinely ordained plan for the wars yet to come. And so he was really putting a clever spin around it in order to convince us that there is actually a plan. We are building something. And if you stick with us, you know, you will see this plan come to fruition. So it sounds like he's trying to present himself as this messianic figure. 
but do you think he believed he was a messiah figure or was he just very cleverly distorting and misrepresenting these well i always you know because you know if anything i always was good at reading faces and understanding how people really believe what they're saying and he looked to me as if he really believed it Uh, he believed what he was saying and in fact you know, I was always holding this view, and I remember many people used to push back at me and saying to me, "No, Ayman, like, you know, I mean, remember, you know, these are cynical people." And I say, "No, he is not cynical. Like, you know, he is a- a- many things, but he is not cynical, and he really believed in this messianic mission that he was embarking on." And thank God for the Abbot Abad papers. You know, you know when they when they finally you know um, uh, killed him in Abbot Abad in 2011, yeah. and they took you know massive amount of papers from his uh, compound. The Abbot Abad papers are fascinating papers for anyone who wants to read. They are open source now. Um, you can read them, but it shows how much he really believed that he was part of a a divine plan. He was writing for himself, like, and he was writing his own diary, and he was talking about the importance that he made, you know, in being one of God's instruments to bring about the uh, epic battles, as he called the epic battles of the end of time. That is terrifying. Like, I know that's an understatement. You're like, you know, podcasting idiot says Osama bin Laden is terrifying. <laughs> total understatement, but he's psychotic. Like, that's psychotic. That's he's completely detached from, from all reality, and there, there's never anyone who I think who then follows in his footsteps are probably going to be going to come along the same stream of psychopathy. Yeah, but remember, like, I mean, I, I know, like, you know, basically, it was Chairman Mao, I think, who, who said that uh, religion is the opium of the masses, which I disagree with totally, like, you know, but. You know, it is later in life I realize that it's not really religion. It is, you know, eschatology that is the, you know, opium of the masses, whether it is, you know, the evangelical right-wing Americans, like, you know, I mean, or the ultra-Jewish conservatives or the uh, ultra-radical Muslims. All of them have the same idea of the end of time, you know. So, you know, so when you see that, you know, uh, you know whether it, even the Iranian, you know, revolution and the Ayatollahs of Iran believe in this, you know, eschatological, apocalyptic, you know, uh, messianic visions. And this is why I always say to people that it is really not religion that is the opium of the masses, but really eschatology is the opium yeah. of the masses. Do you think the followers of religion, the, the quote unquote normal people, do you think the responsibility lies with, I would say, us, because that would apply to you and I, I would hope, um, to counteract and mitigate that otherwise it, c- it can just run riot and it can it can draw more people in well at the end of the day like and i mean you know, you know i think it was edmund burke who said that you know evil prevails when good people do nothing and yep. you know in my case you know well in, in the case of like you know, i mean radicalism across the three religions i would say idiocy prevails when you know clever people say nothing yeah. so <laughs> so so i think in my opinion as long as you know learned and you know well-versed people i mean are not paying attention to what seduces you know people into terrorism because what i always say to people you know you know just like when you are drawn into doing evil things with good intentions because you lack wisdom but the question is where wisdom will come from wisdom is actually taught and therefore if wisdom doesn't have a louder voice then idiocy will have the louder voice and will have the final word. Mm. A very interesting place to kind of stop there, I think, because now we're at a watershed moment. You know, you've met 
big Osama bin Laden and uh, things are about to kind of kick off. We'll pause there, we'll go for a wee break. Um, we've plenty to talk about when we come back on. Uh, get a chance to grab a drink or do whatever. But big round of applause, please, for Eamon for sharing this. We'll see you shortly. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine. And for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series, including Talk Media, Natural Wonders, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School. All on the Big Light, Scotland's podcast network. From the Big Light Studio.